We dismiss our kids to children's ministry, and you can have a seat. We got a call or a text earlier in the week from Craig Sharp. Said uh, about to do a family devotion. What's the text for Sunday? And I wrote Proverbs five. Good luck. Because how'd that go, by the way? Okay, okay. Proverbs five is. From the very first verse all the way to verse the, end, the last verse, verse 23 or so, the Proverbs 5 is about one thing, the adulterous woman. So I pictured Craig sitting down with wife and daughter at, the, at their dinner table, like opening up Proverbs 5. Like, I don't know how he's going to deal with this, but here you go. Proverbs 5 is the text. And that is indeed what the whole chapter is about. But I do want to point out that when the Bible, in particular about sin, when the Bible teaches any particular thing about sin, if you uh, just abstract it a tiny bit, you'll find that it's not only talking about one sin, it's just talking about all sin. The basic mechanics of sin are the same. Not to compare sin to something delightful, but this is sort of like cake. You got chocolate cake, you got strawberry cake, you got vanilla cake. It's like 90% of the ingredients are the same across all of those variety of flavors, the distinctions being much smaller and less significant than the things they have in common. And so I want to show you just six general observations about sin that we can see in this text, and then we'll go back through and make a more detailed pass examining these observations in relationship to sexual sin in particular. This idea that basically all sin is some kind of the same thing, that all of the sort of basic mechanics are similar, is why if you're really being a consistent Christian, being that kind of wrong set, that, that, that high-minded, judgy kind of person, it just doesn't really work within Christianity. If you understand that all sin has the basic same mechanics, and some of them are, in fact, more dangerous, more disastrous, more damaging than others, but at the same time, we could very easily see ourselves succumbing to this or that thing and so on and so forth. So examining sin at sort of a broader, more abstract level, especially before we talk about a very specific sin, seems wise. So I just want to give you six things I saw in the text related to sin in general. Number one, we live in a fallen world. There's just opportunities to die everywhere. <laughs> um, if you've ever been out in the wilderness in a, in a, in a sense of like not, not where there are paths, not where there are you know, handrails and so forth, but the wilderness wilderness, and you're out there for a while, you begin to realize, I, I could die like 30, 30 different ways to die right now. You know? uh, this, is, this is the world we live in. We live in a fallen world. There are many ways to die. Number two, we forget the truth. One of the major themes in the scriptures related to Anthropology, what is a human being, uh, is that when it comes to truth, a human being is a, a, a leaky bucket. We just don't hold on to truth very well. Number three, sin is a con job. Sin is a con job. We have seen even this week yet another financial scam unfold between, before our eyes related to FTX and crypto and so on and so forth, and it feels like Really, almost every other month now, we find some other institution which looked amazing turn out to be a total fraud. 
And so one of the most important things you can think about with sin is that it is always a con job. It is always an effort to trick you into giving up something extremely valuable for a pipe dream, for a mirage, for something that is not true. Um, Number four, flattery is ruinous. There is so much biblical data about why flattery ruins people, and it can ruin entire generations of people who were told they were something special when they were not. Flattery is ruinous. Um, Number five, stigmatizing is underrated. Everybody's trying to destigmatize everything, and I'm up here trying to re-stigmatize a bunch of those things. There's actually a scale, uh, uh, kind of an unspoken scale that societies tend to move through where there uh, there are things that are stigmatized, and then there are things that are normalized. They're not necessarily approved, but they're normal, uh, or they're simply tolerated. And then there is uh, uh, affirmation, and then there's celebration and participation. There's a scale of allowance. And so what you'll see over time is that when you destigmatize something, it's on its way to becoming normalized. And after the normalization occurs, then you'll start hearing the word affirm. And this is, this is the affirmation of what was once stigmatized, right? And then you get to the place where the Bible predicts, and that is, is that those who practice such things encourage you to do the same and think it odd that you're not. So you move from stigmatized to normalize to affirm to celebrate, and we, we start having parades for things that used to be stigmatized, and then eventually we get to participation. It's like almost like in a mandatory sense. Like if you're with us, you'll do this thing a la lot and so on and so forth. And it's good to be aware of this scale because it, and we'll see this more specifically in a moment. It's good to be aware of this because stigmatizing something is a huge means of grace. It's a huge opportunity to care for a great number of people. Uh, What stigmatizing is, is essentially putting shame on a behavior to prevent people from getting to uh, be tempted to do that behavior. And the reason why you have to stigmatize certain behaviors is because when you're right up in front of them, you forget, as we said a moment ago, we're leaky buckets, you forget that it was wrong. It doesn't seem wrong this close. And so we put up all of these all of these arrows and cones and signs, and we try to essentially say, don't cross this line, pass this line lies shame, and we do that because we want to help people avoid particular behaviors. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Um, so stigmatizing is underrated, and number six, a godly offense is the best defense. Essentially, when you find in Scripture is, is that if you want to avoid a behavior, you should find the uh, antecedent of the opposite behavior and just do it. Like, for instance, do you want to be free of the love of money? Give generously. Do you want to keep uh, busy and free from self-indulgence? Serve others, as John shared. And if you start filling your life with all the good things that you should be doing, there will be less room for the bad things that you should not be doing. So these are the kind of six general observations Nothing novel here per se, but this just seemed like a great time to give you something that Martin Luther said that I felt like was just a good reminder of general ideas in terms of walking in Christ, and he says it this way, and if this were not sufficient to admonish us to read the catechism daily, so he's just talking about, let's, let's 
let's read the scriptures. It's, it's catechisms were a guide to the scriptures. Yet we should feel sufficiently constrained by the command of God alone, who solemnly enjoins us in Deuteronomy 6, 6, that we should always meditate upon his precepts, sitting, walking, standing, lying down and rising, and have them before our eyes, in our hands, and in our hands as a constant mark and sign. Doubtless, he did not so solemnly require and enjoin this without a purpose. So Luther's saying, God seems to be really insistent that you and I are forgetful people and that we have to essentially meditate upon the word, hold the word tightly, whether we're walking or standing or laying down and so on and so forth. It's like, there's got to be a purpose for this. And then he says, but because he knows our danger and need, as well as the constant and furious assaults and temptations of devils, he wishes to warn, equip, preserve us against them as with a good armor against their fiery darts and with good medicine against their evil infection and suggestion. Oh, what mad, senseless fools are we while we must, must, while we must ever live and dwell among such mighty enemies as these devils are. We nevertheless despise our weapons and defense and are too lazy to look at or think of them. So Luther's essentially describing all of the points I just made in one big, beefy quote. This world's dangerous. We are forgetful. There are con men, spiritual con men out there trying to get to you. One of the means they use is flattery. They destigmatize things that you should uh, avoid. And all of this is just one big hazardous mess, and we have to be vigilant. And the best way to be vigilant is to engage proactively in the good things that God has called us to do. So now let me show you where these are in the text and how they apply specifically to the issue of sexual sin. The first one was simply this, we live in a fallen world. And, and that idea isn't based on a particular verse in the text, it's just the whole text, because here's the idea. God created this beautiful, wonderful gift of physical intimacy, and because of sin, it has become a kind of double agent. It can create and it can also kill. Think of that. God wired you with a powerful, miraculous thing that we don't fully understand. That's a reward circuitry full of powerful chemicals that in many ways make you who you are, called hormones. And these were all put into you to... Uh, to to reward you when you did good things. And when God created man and woman, sexual intimacy was a good thing. And now all of this is, in some respects, broken by sin. The most fundamental part of some people's experience, and that shouldn't be that sexuality should never be our most fundamental identity. It is also understandable why some people feel that way. The most fundamental part that some people see about themselves is their sexuality. That's, that's, not, that's not the truth, but that's what they see. And it is all broken and bent and twisted because of sin. So one of the things to just stand back at and remember is it's a little pathetic, but our eyes adjust to the darkness rather quickly. And we have all gotten used to this broken world where something God created as an agent for life is now an agent for death, as we will see in our text. So, yeah, this sometimes it's just good to take a moment and shed a tear for the reality of sin 
and then enjoin that tear with a praise God for the reality of not only redemption, but Jesus' call to make all things new, his promise to make all things new. And this is how we wind up at the place of that second song where we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. There's a lot of stuff here in this life that's really hard, and it's hard because of sin. Number two, we forget the truth. This comes directly from the first two verses of Proverbs. The most consistent command in Proverbs is to pay attention and not forget. Of all the other wisdom assigned in the book of Proverbs, whether it be to avoid the forbidden woman, to be generous with your finances, to walk in integrity in your business, of all of the advice and counsel given in Proverbs, if we were to do some kind of a bar chart or a bar graph, the one that would have by far the most uh, presence in Proverbs is simply the command to pay attention. If you really thought about what is monetized most today in our culture, you would realize that the thing that you are, the thing that, 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 that business believes is most valuable is your time turned into money, but preceding that, your attention. The whole business community is wired around getting your attention. Your attention is a very precious thing. And you need to see it that way too, by the way. Your attention is a very precious thing. And what you'll see over and over and over again in Proverbs is pay attention. As it says here, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding. But look at what it says there in verse 2. That you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Remember a moment ago I said that we are leaky buckets. Look at the words that often appear in Proverbs and it's like, it's like wisdom is a slippery fish. You ever tried to hold a fish the wrong way? Like, there's a right way to hold a fish, and they aren't getting away. But, you know, you hold a fish the wrong way, and it's really hard to, to, to hold them. Years ago, I was fishing by myself in a remote area where I certainly could have died. Uh, a lesser man would have died. Uh, <laughs> and I was there on the, for my second time trying to catch this particular fish that I knew was there because I almost caught him the time before. And he's like, huge, and he's mount, He's in my garage, I, not to ruin the story, he's, he's on the wall in my garage right now, but uh, I, I was, I'm, I'm a full-blown gimmick fisherman, like, if the bait, if it has some kind of gimmick to it, I'm going to buy it, and, you know, I'm convinced the gimmicks, they, they get me every time, and this gimmick fishing lure had a red light inside of it, so you could fish it at night, and you'd just see this red glow through the waters, you know, and there was this giant bass that was living in a submerged, a, 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 boat, a boat that had sank, and this, it was just the perfect situation. So, so I, I, I just persistently cast out, and I see my little red thing, and then all of a sudden the red thing just, you know, the fish hits it, and I reel it in, and I've got this monster once-in-a-lifetime bass, and his mouth is glowing red, because <laughs> it's pitch black outside. And I can't get the lure out of his mouth. And also the lure is so like big and clunky and so many hooks that I keep like, tearing up my hand as the fish is thrashing around and everything. And uh, finally I was just like, I will just set the fish on top of my tackle box and, and like walk back to my car. I had about half a mile to walk back on this path, this trail. And uh, anyway, so as I'm walking back, my hand slips off the fish. The fish jumps up in the air, it, eye level, and I just see this red glowing bass, like, and I just scream like a girl in the middle of the woods. You know, like, 
holding on to truth is, well, it plays on our pride because we think we're better at it than we are. And we grow casual and lax with the need to hold on to truth. But you see in this verse here, you have to try to keep discretion. You have to try to guard knowledge. It doesn't stay put like it ought to stay put. And that's related to the next point, which is sin is a con job and adultery is one of the worst cons. And I want to explain why that is. Look at verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Shoal. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Con jobs involve taking something precious from someone with the promise of something more precious. And the reason why adultery is one of the biggest cons is because family is the greatest wealth in the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs does all sorts of cool things. It teaches us how to teach. It teaches us how to think, all these kinds of things. And one of the things it does is it gives us sort of a list of these are the most valuable things. And of all of the treasures described in Proverbs, and they're, they're, they're kind of like, think of one that's probably in there, the one that is described to be the most precious is your family. And not only your family, but your legacy. And so it's obvious then if you start to examine the way the book of Proverbs deals with adultery in particular, the reason why it is so sharply against this particular sin is because this particular sin can steal what they, what, the, what Proverbs believes is the greatest source of wealth. And so adultery is straight up a con. It always is a con. But I think it's helpful maybe just to revisit the mechanics of a con. Growing up, my parents' two favorite movies were, well, three favorite movies. These are odd movies now that I think about it. It's a sort of new Christian favorite movies. Chariots of Fire, okay, very Christian movie. Uh, young Frankenstein, <laughs> not super Christian movie, and um, The Sting with Robert Redford and uh, Paul Newman. We watched a lot of Robert Redford movies now that I have, when my mom was picking for some reason. Anyway, The Sting is all about the con, and then The Sting has this sort of kind of like mechanics of how the con works, and I checked all this and read all this just to make sure that I was talking about it correctly. But there are always two parties in a con. Uh, usually, though, there are at least three. The two that are absolutely required are what you call the mark, and that's the potential victim. And then the other person is the confidence man. That's the con man. And the con man is, you know, he's picked this mark, and he's going to basically trick this mark into taking something by promising something. But there's a third person that's called the shill. And in most cons, it's not just the mark and the con, con man, it's the mark, the con man, and the shill. And the shill is a person who has some knowledge that this is a con, but also they themselves are being kind of kept in the dark. They're relatively unaware. And what we see in this text is, is that adultery is a con, but the woman is not the con artist. She's the shill. And we see that where it says, her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Shoal, 
She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. She's involved, and, and, and we can toss the genders back and forth here. That's not relevant in this particular passage. Like it could be a man, it could be a woman. You've got the, the mark, who in this passage is the son. And then you've got the shill, who in this passage is the forbidden woman. So who's the con man? Well, you have to look at where they're going, right? Where are they going? Where are both of them headed to? Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Shoal. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Who's the con man? The devil's the con man. I was helping someone discern a question of spiritual warfare the other day, and I had to remind them that in the short term, it is always safer to assume it's the devil. That way you don't underestimate what you're up against. In the long run, you might look back and say, well, that wasn't the devil, that was just me, or that was this. But in the short term, we have an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He is a con artist, and we should live with that sense of understanding. In fact, one of the things that you can see about a con that's so devilish is that in a con, everybody is at least a little guilty. The victim in a con is almost always at least a little guilty. He's usually guilty of greed and often even knows he's doing something illegal. Um, a con man will often say to the mark, hey, I've got this inside track. It's not exactly legal, so we have to keep it on the down low, but I want to invite you in on it. No one in the con is innocent, per se. But we would also say that some people are victims and some people are not. And that's really how you should think about adultery as a scam. It's a scam perpetrated by the devil to trick people into giving away their greatest treasures. And yes, at some level they are complicit, and at some other level they are deceived. That's why I say that it is a con. And as I said before, when you follow the mechanics of sin, you'll wind up seeing that kind of all the basic ingredients are the same in all the various sins. But in this particular case, the sin of sexual immorality is uniquely lined up with the original sin in the garden. So in Genesis 3.6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was designed to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, I didn't, I didn't include the devil in that passage. He's in that passage. He's the con man. The other two people are just conned in some respects and responsible in some respects, right? But pay attention in particular to this. The very first sin involved three allures. The, physical, the allure of physical pleasure, the text says that she knew that it was good to eat, that it would taste good. The second one was visual pleasure, a delight to the eyes. She saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. And the third one is an ego pleasure. It was desired to make one wise. Okay? And that leads us to our fourth point. Flattery is ruinous. Flattery is ruinous. I remember one time I had to buy a, a shirt or pants, I forget what it is now, um, and I was at some trendy store by myself trying it on. And you know, when I was in the store, it looked pretty good. And then I came home and tried it on again, and I 
I just looked terrible. Like it was it was it was shockingly bad. It was like a you know a, a, sh a Shrek with a tarp on kind of a situation. You know? <laughs> I'm well aware of my body type, people. You know? And I I really had this sort of like this moment of like what happened? Were there trick mirrors? In the, uh, in the store or what? Like, how was I so deceived? And then I realized that I am highly susceptible to music. And that store had cool guy music playing <laughs> while I tried that those, that, those pants on or whatever. And it had cool guy music, so I thought I was cool. Like, it, 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 it got me. Uh, it, it, it sort of flattered me into thinking that I was one of the cool guys. This is, this is essentially, if you wanted to always avoid adultery, I mean, within some kind of, you know, uh, certainly uh, a higher eff effectiveness rate than like certain vaccines we know about. If you actually wanted to like really, really avoid adultery, you would just become immune to flattery. Because this is almost always how it starts. And yes, I have been on the back end, the autopsy side, the recovery side, thank God, many times, of a number of affairs over the, you know, over my pastoral ministry. I've, I've walked with people as they've undid all of this or examined all of this. And I will tell you point blank, if you were to become immune to flattery, you essentially would not be temptable. There's different kinds of flattery that appeal to different people, but let's be clear, this is embedded, if we, wrote, if, we read, if we read Hebrew, we would have saw that right away when we read the text, but let me show it to you. In verse 1, my son, be attentive to my wisdom and incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Now, I want you to see here, the father is telling the son, you're a leaky bucket and you're imperfect and you don't know everything you need to know. The father is insulting the son. Okay, next line. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. So what you've got here is this idea of he's telling the son, you're not enough. You've got to pay attention. You're going to forget all of this. And then the adulteress comes along, and she does exactly the opposite. She says, you're more than enough for me. You're everything I've been looking for. Friends, we all desire to hear those words from someone. We all desire to hear those words from someone. The phrase, her speech is smoother than oil. The word smoother right there is actually the Hebrew word for flattery. To, to flatter is to smooth something out. In fact, you can hear that in the word flat -er. You're making something smooth. And what flattery does is it removes friction to get someone to see things your way. It's, it's, it's essentially a classic vehicle for manipulation, and Christians should be absolutely not, um, absolutely suspicious of flattery and also just forsworn on the front end not to use it, not to use it to smooth out social situations, not to tell people what they want to hear. Tell them the truth. If, if you can't do that, then just don't talk, Okay. Engaging in flattery is just a ruinous ordeal, and what's happening all the time when it comes to affairs, so far as I can see, is that whether in verbally or non-verbally, there is essentially an exchange of flattery that's going on. 
And somebody might say, I just feel more important when this person's in my, when this, when this person talks to me. This person cares about me. This person pays attention to me. This person doesn't take, uh, take me for granted. I feel attractive when I'm around this person, and so on and so forth. And if you were really to look at the front end of all of them, it always winds up being um, it, flattery, at least from one party, usually both parties. I want you to really understand this, and I'm going to stigmatize flattery, and I'll explain more about that in a moment. But you've heard of gaslighting. And gaslighting, the, the one that everybody seems to be concerned about, and rightly so, is when, when someone tries to make you think you're crazier than you are. That one is like, we all know, that's bad. Someone shouldn't try to make you think you're crazier than you are. But I want to introduce a second one, and that is the people who try to make you think you're sexier than you are because you're not. So here's the general rule of thumb. Three things. Number one, you're not that crazy. Number two, you're not that sexy. Number three, random people who tell you you are that crazy or that sexy should not be paid attention to. Sometimes we forget that a lot of the lies that come our way aren't lies that make us feel bad. They're lies that make us feel good. And if you were really just hostile to flattery, the other day, uh, an, older, an older woman at Sam's walked past me and said, you smell good. <laughs> and I was ready to marry her right then. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I did totally fall for it, though. I was immediately like, amen, I smell good. Thank you so much. I'm, I feel so much better about myself. And I got to thinking about that afterward because this text was, you know, kind of in my head at the time. Like, man, we are just all suckers. If she just said, like, you smell good, would you mind cleaning up my garage for me? would be like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> really do have to pay attention. What, one of the reasons why um, Flattery and leaky bucketness work together is that if you think about truth as like in your glass and it's full and you've got all the truth in your glass, what, what flattery does is it actually replaces what's in the glass without ever doing this. It just pours more stuff in the glass. And you, might, you sometimes wonder, how does a pastor start out faithful, zealous for the Lord and wind up, you know, becoming famous and then blah, 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 blah. Over time, flattery replaces what's in the cup. The truth that's in there gets replaced with flattery. And you don't even know that there's an event taking place. You're not conscious of the spillage because you're just so thankful for the, the filling of the cup. And so we have to really be careful of flattery because it actually has this very sneaky way of displacing the truth that we know. And before we know it, our cup's not full of truth anymore. It's full of, it's full of lies that feel really good. And no, no event has taken place that felt violent or hurtful or wrong as to signal that we have just been duped. And this is why, again, related to the issue of sexual sin as a con game, this is, this is how all this takes place. It, to go back to Eve, her cup was full of God's word that said, of this fruit you shall not eat, the day you, shall, you eat it you shall surely die. She, she did, at no point did Eve go, here devil, fill me up. By entering into the conversation with the devil, 
the new information, the wrong information, just slowly displaced the old. And so that when time she had to make the decision, all the truth was gone. And this new truth, this is a good-looking fruit that's going to taste good and it's going to it's going to make me be good or better. Like that's what that's what flattery does. All right, now stigmatizing is underrated. Stigmatizing is part of the social immune system. It is essentially pre-dosing certain behaviors with small amounts of shame so that when a vulnerable person encounters a particularly virulent idea, they are somewhat aware that this is probably not a good idea, that one of the main human emotions is disgust. And you, we can use all of the human emotions for the glory of God, including anger. They're all for the glory of God. And what Proverbs does is it, it, it utilizes the human, one of the core, actually one of the strongest human emotions is disgust. What's happening in this passage is it's, it's essentially pre-filling the concept of stepping out on your spouse with disgust. And this is very healthy. It is very healthy to pre-fill potentially destructive categories with a sense of disgust. And when we talk about stigmatizing, what we mean is stigmata, marking with shame. We're marking a set of behaviors out with shame. And we're doing that so that when the person encounters those, they have already some degree of disgust. And something's clearly wrong to them about this. When I was a little kid, we had a swimming hole that we would go to all the time. And it was, I mean, honestly, like nowadays, it's just one of those many feelings of loss that kids don't get to have some of the things I had as a kid. Um, it's just like down the road from our house. And, you know, it was this huge swimming hole. I mean, yeah, you had to watch out for the water moccasins. But other than that, it was great. Anyway, my dad was with us there one day. He had driven us, actually. And uh, he, said, he said to my mom, hey, we... We need to go. She's like, why? He's like, I just do not have a good feeling about this. Something's not right. And so we got in the car and went home. And of course, my brother and I are bummed that my dad's such a killjoy. Uh, and literally, like an hour later, we turn on the TV. And, and our, you know, it's a small town, so the live news is anything is news. They were live at the spot that we were swimming just an hour or so before. Um, and there was a dead body just right there while we were swimming the whole time. Now, I told you that story because I want you to hear, you just felt disgust. You just felt the human emotion of disgust. And what Proverbs wants to do, what God's word wants to do, is he wants to, it wants you to know that there are behaviors that are disgusting and wrong and inappropriate. Because in the moment when they're in front of you, they're going to feel not disgusting and wrong and inappropriate. And so if you are, this is one of the things I want to say is, if you are struggling with any level of sexual purity, you really need to start just reading through the first seven chapters of Proverbs and grab hold of these stick, because what you need to do is you need to re-stigmatize this behavior. So you need to re-insert disgust from God's perspective into this particular behavior. Let's just read as a way of seeing this re-stigmatizing, this disgust filling, look at verse 3 all the way through verse 14. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. 
Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Shoal. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Oh, now and now, O oh sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So again, I think it's fair to say, like as a, as a man, I, we, I, I will struggle with sexual temptation and so on from time to time. It's like, how do you, how do you manage that when that becomes a louder voice in your life? You got to re-stigmatize that thing, man. You got to go back and say, this tells me all I need to know. This is disgusting. It's wrong. It's hurtful. It's a con job. It relies on my pride and my flattery, so on and so forth. By the way, just as a, a reminder or, or helpful information, uh, the three most common age groups for extramarital adultery, for adultery, are the 30s, uh, the 60s, and the 70s, and the most common is the 50s. So the 50s, 30s, 60s, and 70s. Those are the most common ages. And what do those ages have in common? Well, especially for the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, it has, it has in common this sense of, I'm okay. I'm, I'm not in any danger. Complacency. And also, a lot of feelings of inadequacy around the 50s. Right? And, and the, the, the openness to flattery. You know, honestly, in my 20s, if an older woman had come and told me I smelled good, I'd been like, okay. <laughs> You get more insecure as you get older. You're like, man, like, am I really, did I really make the right choices? Am I really on the path of happiness? Do people really recognize me as anything anymore? You got to re-stigmatize all that stuff. And last point, a godly offense is the best defense. Uh, I think beginning in verse 15, look at that with me. Drink water from your own cistern flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Here's the reality in all of life. There are things that are hassle to do that you're really glad you did them afterward. There are things that you sometimes have to schedule that you're thinking right up until you're like, man, I don't know, can we, are we really gonna have people over for dinner tonight? And then you're glad you did. All of the positive, godly, joy-filled, offensive things don't necessarily always feel immediately like the thing you should be doing or want to do at this particular moment. But if you will just trust God's word and lean not on your own understanding and say, that's a good thing, I should schedule that into my life. That's a good thing, I should schedule that into my life. That's a good thing, I should schedule that into my life. And you stop judging for yourself what is a good thing. Take God's word, do the stuff God tells you to do, do it proactively. Here's what you're going to find. You don't have much more time 
left or energy left. But everything you're doing is actually life-giving and full of joy and happiness. And you're honestly really glad that you prioritize these things. It's just that in the time, you really didn't think you would be glad. When it relates to the issue of sexual morality, the Bible has an explicit prescription. And it is, let me, let me say something kind of shocking. The Apostle Paul is not the only voice on marriage in the Bible, but from his perspective, there is only one reason for marriage, and that is to fight sexual temptation. So that is flies in the face of everything uh, all of us want to think about gospel marriage. And, and let me tell you something, all those things that we think about gospel marriage, uh, camaraderie, mission, so forth. All of those are true. But Paul explicitly, if you'll read 1 Corinthians 7 for yourself, you'll see that he would prefer that everyone stay single. Every single thing you can, you can do in marriage to glorify God is something you can do in singleness. Again, these, this just sounds totally, totally contradictory, but that's what Paul sees. For instance, Paul's single, He's not looking around for kids to care for. There's always a Timothy. There's always a Titus, so on. So Paul, actually, if we actually want to know what the Bible says and not what Christian books say, um, Paul actually says that the reason to get married is one thing. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 7. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. This is Paul's reason for marriage. Every other reason would be from someone else in the Bible. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that he would prefer all be single, and he gives reasons for that, and you can read all of that yourself. He says there's one reason why you should get married. It's to deal with the scam, the con that sexual sin presents to human beings. So what role does sex play in a marriage? In Paul's mind, it's the reason to get married. Again, we aren't going to be able to go through all of the reasons that the whole Bible presents, but it's really clear how Paul thought about this. The main thing for Paul was, if you can stay single and not burn with lust, stay single. But if you burn with lust, you should get married. And then he says in verse 3, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, so that's Paul's extremely detailed explanation of what we read in Proverbs 5, which is drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight be intoxicated always in her love. And there are some who read this and are like, amen, done and done. 
uh, I will obey this command. And, uh, and I'm, what I mean by that is there's some marriages that hear this and they're like, done and done. And there are other people, other people who really struggle with sexual purity. And they read that and they say, I wish it were more simple. I wish it were that simple because my lovely doe always seems to have a headache. Let's talk about that just, just for a moment. One of the prevailing themes in the text is that we live in a dangerous world and that some of the most dangerous dangers come not from physical violence or extreme poverty or lifting heavy objects. Some of the most dangerous dangers come from sexual temptation. Are you all on board with that? It's really pretty clear in the text. You want to you find your way on a path to Shoal? Here's a danger for you. Providing safety for the family in the domain of violence and poverty are uniquely distributed in scriptures to men. What do men do? They keep their wives and children safe from physical violence and poverty. Now, it's not entirely 100% on the man, like both spouses lock the doors and both spouses mind their surroundings and so forth. But generally speaking, the man is responsible for his own physical safety and the physical safety of his wife, children. And if a man in providence was not accepting this responsibility, he would be stigmatized and given a firm talking to. Now, again, though, we see in our text that there are other dangers besides the physical people breaking into our house besides violence, so forth. There are other dangers, and it's a bad one, and it's a danger related to sexual temptation. And what Proverbs is teaching implicitly and what Paul is teaching explicitly is this has to be the responsibility. Protecting the spouse from this danger is the responsibility of the other spouse. It is fairly common to see a woman who is happy to accept her husband's provision of physical safety and financial safety while she carelessly sends him out into the world to fend for himself against the danger of sexual immorality. That is fairly common. I will accept the protection you provide for me. I will not provide any protection for you. And the text is very clear that that's just not going to fly. That's just not kind. It's not loving. It's not wise. I, I think if I drew a diagram, I would say that there are all these enemies coming at us, and a lot of the enemies are physical, physically violent, and a lot of the enemies are like a clogged gutter that's going to split and it's going to ruin um, you know, the wall that the house is, that it's on. And another enemy is like uh, bugs in the house. And another enemy is poverty. And there's all these enemies out there and we're trying to, you know, fight all of them. And what, what Christian men are called to do is they're called to stand there and, and hold back all of these enemies, but they have this one flank that's open to a bunch of the worst arrows. And it's simply... Um, a very chauvinistic, um, 
cruel thing to not expect women to be strong. It's foolish. And it takes to not expect women to fight in their domain. Nope, that's not, that's not how we do things. That's not what the Bible says. You are responsible for your husband's back. Your husband is responsible for your back. And what I will tell you is the second most common thing, um, three things about counseling with these things. Number one, flattery is almost always uh, an issue. Number two, in my experience, it's about 50-50 guys, girls initiated. And number three, almost always the, the, the spouse who was cheated on was not actively guarding their, other, their spouse's um, flank, if you will, from these particular attacks. Another way to talk about this, just really quickly, I want to make sure this sinks in, but I also don't want to, I, I, this, this is not the time to go super deep into this, is I, I just want you to imagine that my wife and I have a counseling appointment with a woman who's a stay-at-home mom, her and her husband have agreed that she isn't going to work while the kids are young, and he's going to make ends meet. And the reason we're meeting with this woman is because she is just struggling constantly with worries about money. And she knows that this is not right. She knows she shouldn't be worried about this. She knows she shouldn't be worried because the Lord is her provider and her caretaker. But she also knows that it's really just an invitation from the Lord to trust God through her husband. And so she's already figured out all the answers, and all we have to kind of say is, hey, yeah, that's right. Um, she sometimes fantasizes about just putting the kids in school and working or even sometimes wishing maybe she had married someone with more money. And she knows all this is wrong. So how would I counsel her? How would we counsel her? Well, we would tell her, you know, hey, you have to trust that God will meet your needs through your husband's care for you. And, and this is his job and he's agreed to do it and so forth. Will that counsel help her? It's definitely going to help her because it's the truth. And she's just responsible for that. Like, she just has to obey. This is, what, this is what God wants. She's got to stop worrying. She's got to start trusting God and specifically trusting that God will provide for her through her husband. But there's a complicator, right? I would never in a million years counsel someone in that regard without asking a bunch of questions related to the following. Is her husband the kind of guy who makes that easy or hard? Because there are two different kinds of husbands. There's the husband who is diligent and hardworking, and then there's the husband who is lazy, checked out, and has a tendency to feel sorry for himself. And so the question is sort of that you'd, you'd want to ask is, is he a bold bacon bringer, or is he timid and let people walk on him, and does he compromise uh, so that his family is always the last thing taken care of. So I'm counseling, we're counseling this woman and we're saying, you've got to trust that God's going to provide through your husband. Now let's talk about your husband because I just want to know how hard or easy this is going to be. What kind of husband is he? Is he incompetent, lazy, indifferent to your struggles, or does he actually try? Okay, so we have that counseling session, pray with the woman, say, hey, let's talk to your husband, let's, let's, let's keep walking together. Second meeting. We have a second meeting. Ange leaves for this one. It's just a dude. He comes in. He's married and is really struggling with his thought life. There's a lot of fantasy going on inside there. And uh, he catches himself thinking inappropriate thoughts a lot. And he's totally convinced that he's wrong. And he knows that it's simply not acceptable. There's no excuses. Full ownership. And so what do I tell this guy? I say, you have to trust that God will meet your needs 
through your wife's care for you. Right? That's, that's what the Bible teaches. But what's the follow-up question? Is your wife lazy? Or is she diligent? Is your wife selfish or selfless? Is your wife pursuing competency in this area or simply letting it coast? Now, in both cases, there are no excuses. There are no passes given to either party. God tells you to trust him by submitting to your spouse in these particular areas. And that's just how it's got to be. But it would also be highly insensitive to the real world situation without asking those follow-up questions. Does your spouse, by the way they behave, make it easy for you to trust them? Paul's idea for marriage reminds me of an ad campaign for Rolls-Royce back in the 50s. It's a famous campaign. And the campaign simply reads, at 60 miles per hour, the loudest noise in this new Rolls-Royce is the electric clock. I love that. I love that. The loudest, the 60 miles an hour, the loudest noise in this new Rolls-Royce electric car. Here's God's vision for sexuality. The world is broken and it is full of sexual noise. And marriage is this satisfying thing to get into and hear that heavy door thump behind you. And now you have peace. This is what God wants your marriage to be in this area. I wouldn't say that it's guaranteed to be as quiet as the Rolls-Royce ad claims. There are other issues at work. But I would say that this is actually God's design to combat all of the darkness, all of the chaos and cons that we've seen throughout this chapter. There's, there is a thing, a refuge that God has created. And that refuge needs to be attended to Back then, Rolls-Royce had a phenomenal reputation. They actually had a life, life, lifelong guarantee on, all their, on their cars. And uh, they were asking an engineer, like, why? You know, how, does this, how do you pull this off? It's a completely different level of car. And he said, we pay attention to everything all the time. And that gets us right back to the very beginning of the text. Pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention to what God describes as the potential calamity awaiting you if you fall into this sin. Pay attention also to the prescription God prescribes at the end of the text. To introduce communion, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 6. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then, if you have felt this, uh, 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 if you have felt a hardship when you've heard this over sin that you have committed, I want you to hear this beautiful verse. And such were some of you. This is verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, so you can go back and read it yourself. And such were some of you, 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And from, for, to, to read a communion passage for this week, I thought Matthew 26 would be ideal. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink all of it, all of you, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. And here's the key, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We've discussed extremely difficult, extremely dark things, not only in the realm of sexual sin, but also just the darkness of selfishness. And now we have this table set before us that Jesus wants us to understand represents his body and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So as you, before you get up to come to this table here in a moment, do you know that because Jesus Christ died for you, though your sins are as scarlet, they are now white as snow, and that you have been washed and that you have been redeemed and that you have been made new? Come today with that thought in your head and with this uh, juice hits your throat, when this bread hits your mouth, thank Jesus, thank you. Thank you for laying down your life to make me white as snow. Let me pray for us and then you come. Lord God, these are many uh, heavy things. We thank you for your cheerful fatherly kindness to bring us your good news and your word of wisdom. And now we're so thankful that we get to end this time by celebrating the finished work of Jesus that made an end to our sin, that also removed sin as the dominant force in our lives. Lord, we're thankful that we can now walk with you in righteousness and grace. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.